If you have a Bible, you can turn in the book of Genesis to Genesis chapter 38. God's providence, we encounter two difficult passages this morning, one from our Old Testament reading and one from our sermon text. It can be tempting to think of our ancestors in the faith, particularly those who have played a particularly significant role in redemptive history, uh, such as Judah and uh, lionize them, if you will. Um, <laughs> to consider their lives as pure and pristine examples, um, but we're reminded that they were sinners such as we, and uh, the Bible doesn't hold back in um, setting forth the heinous reality of sin. It's not a tame reality, it's a dreadful uh, reality, and one into which we get a glimpse this morning. Lend your attention, this is God's word. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chaziv when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given him in marriage When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give to you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. 
And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anayim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent the young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose they are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Thus far, the reading of God's word. And turn in the Gospel of Matthew to Matthew chapter 7. As a reminder, the Lord has finished the Sermon on the Mount and he's entered into a series of instructions and exhortations about how to receive his word and what the life of Christian discipleship will look like. You'll recall two weeks ago, uh, he warned us about false prophets. Uh, This week, he warns us about false professions. You might say two weeks ago, he warned us of wolves. Now he warns us of goats. Uh, This is a difficult text. Uh, The interpretation is not very difficult. Uh, The basic thrust is plain. It's the thrust that is difficult. Uh, But we don't shy away, as we just heard, we don't shy away from any part of God's word, even if it's difficult, even if it makes us uncomfortable. Uh, We do that because we know that we are the problem, and that God has designed his words to confront us, and his truth in its plainness oftentimes makes us uncomfortable. The proper response to God's word is not a defensive posture, but a receptive posture. Receive with meekness the implanted word that it might save your souls. So we might ask that God grant us that posture which is necessary to receive, even from hard texts, good things. So with that, this is God's word. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Thus ends God's word. Join me in prayer. 
Father, this is a hard scene to consider and, and to know that it is true is a dreadful and humbling, Father. And we pray that indeed that might be the effect that it has, uh, that we might be humbled in the face of this teaching. And you might prepare our hearts to receive of it, that you might place us at the feet of Jesus, even now, who speaks these words to us as his followers, as those who say to him, Lord, Lord. Help me, uh, Father, uh, to speak with courage and plainness. Attend these words with your spirit who alone can bring forth life, who alone can open eyes, who alone can strengthen faith, who alone can bring forth love. And do these things, O Lord, for we ask in Christ's name, amen. In the movie, uh, It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey sees a world in which he had never been born. It's a really interesting experience. Uh, Imagine a world in which you had never been born and then imagine getting to see it. All the same people that you know, all the same places that you know, but your entire existence and the effect that that would have on all of them is completely erased. Even as a boy, I was afraid of the second half of that movie. My parents would always show it at Christmas time, and I'm like, why are you showing us horror films at Christmas time? It was eerie. The movie was very eerie. The, The bridge and the bar and the graveyard, it had a very Dickensian Christmas carol, which was another movie that gave me nightmares as a kid. The Ghost of Christmas Future. But it was only as I got older that the full horror of these scenes dawned on me. Perhaps you remember when George asks about his wife in this world in which he had never existed. He asks where Mary is, and Clarence tells him she's about to close up the library, and he runs to her. He's desperate at this point. He's terrified. He's clearly unsettled. And he approaches her, hoping for some recognition in this strange world. Surely, she, of all people, will know who he is. And he approaches her. And to his horror, she has no idea who he is. Could you imagine that? Like, imagine that for a second. That is a dreadful thought. Running to one whom you think knows and loves you only to find out not only do they not recognize you, they want to get away from you. That's the stuff of nightmares. This is a dreadful scene here. uh, There was no way to escape that nightmarish quality about this scene. You can't paper over it with convincing yourself it's a hypothetical. It doesn't read like, he says plainly, there will be many. This is not a hypothetical. This is matter of fact. This scene is real. It's a dreadful thought. It's a dreadful scene. 
Jesus says, many will look to me with that expectation of recognition only to receive the terrible pronouncement, I never knew you. Depart from me. (sighs) You've got to feel something of the devastation of that scene. That's partly the point. We can't shrink back from that. And you actually have to go further still. We're not at liberty to think, oh my, that will be devastating for those people. The proper response to this text is, is it I, Lord? (laughs) This scene sounds very familiar when it's read in the light of the scene that takes place around the Lord's Supper. Jesus knew who was going to betray him. He looked at his closest followers. He knew Judas was the son of destruction. He knew it. And yet, what does he say? He says, one of you will betray me. Why didn't he just tell him? Why didn't he just specify who it was? Why would he put the other 11 through that angst? Why would he put you through that angst right now? Because there was something for all of them to gain by asking, is it I, Lord? They all had the same corruption in their heart. Judas's corruption wasn't unique. He didn't possess a particular species of corruption called the betrayal corruption. They all had it in their hearts. And so in a very real sense, it was remarkably fitting that they all grapple with the reality of their hearts in the wake of him going to the cross to die for the reality of their hearts. The proper response to this text is, it's not going to be bad for them. It's, Lord, keep this from being me. Is this I, Lord? Can you feel that? It's another variation of the earnestness of the psalmist who comes before the Lord saying, search me and know me. Search me and know me. Oftentimes we think that as long as it's out of sight or it's out of recognition, then it's not true. The man who recognizes signs of cancer early in his body gains nothing by ignoring them. Nothing. It's by mustering the courage to be searched and known that the possibility of life opens up. So may the Lord grant us the courage and the sustaining grace to ask earnestly, is it I, Lord? So consider with me this morning. First, the need for true faith. Second, the face of false faith. And third, the face of true faith. First, the need for true faith. He starts, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. It would be easy to miss the underlying assumption here. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. The other way to say that would be, 
only those who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Does that make sense? Not everyone of all of those who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not envisioning two different groups here. On the one hand over here, you have those who profess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then on the other hand, completely separate from that group, are those who do good works. That's not the picture here. He pictures one group who all profess Jesus Christ is Lord with an earnest expectation of entering into the kingdom. And then within that group, he carves out this dreadful group. Not everyone within that group is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. The point that we want to make here is that this text does not decentralize faith in Jesus Christ as entrance into the kingdom of heaven either now in its partial participation or then in its full participation. Scripture teaches us plainly the only way to enter into the kingdom of heaven is by coming to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Anybody disagree with that? Does this text upend that most basic teaching of the New Testament? That the only entrance into the kingdom of heaven is through faith in Jesus Christ. There's a number of observations that we can make in the light of that. The first one is this text does not teach that there are just a bunch of people out there who are doing good, who do not profess Jesus as Lord, who are going to be welcomed into the kingdom. Do you see how that text might read that way? Are you all just tired from a too late night last night? <laughs> you should get to bed early on Saturday night. This text is not teaching that entrance into the kingdom of heaven is possible via good works apart from faith in Jesus Christ. That's not what it's teaching. John teaches plainly, and this is the commandment of God, that you believe in Jesus Christ and that you love one another. True love is impossible apart from true faith in Jesus Christ. This isn't separating faith and good works. Which is the second observation. This passage does not teach that we are in by faith, but that we are saved ultimately by works. Now we have to be a little bit more nuanced here because it's very clearly setting forth the importance of works, isn't it? Can you feel that? It's very clearly setting forth the importance of obedience. Can you feel that? The Reformed faith has always felt that. That's not new to us. It's not like, oh, Calvin didn't think of that. He, didn't, he must not have read this text. There are all sorts of texts. Scripture is plain, the importance of good works. You can even go so far as to say the necessity of good works, the necessity of love, the necessity of the fruit of the Spirit, as long as you define what you mean by necessity. The way that the Westminster Confession of Faith states this is plain. Man is saved by faith alone. But that faith is never alone. But is always accompanied by other saving graces. And is no dead faith. But worketh by love. The nuance there is so important. Because 
You'll see other traditions grappling with this and coming to very different conclusions, one which has some pretty difficult outworkings. This man justified by faith alone. He said, well, he's justified by faith working by love. It's like, ah, that's a departure. You really got to make sense of some hard text in Paul if you're going to hold that. Whereas the Westminster Confession of Faith is plain in its nuance. It says, are other saving graces necessary? Absolutely they are. Is man saved by faith alone? Absolutely. How do you make sense of those things? Man is saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. Oh, that's elegant. And that fits. It fits with what's going on here. Only those who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then it goes on to differentiate between dead faith, those who appeal to mere knowledge, those who appear to experience as we're about to see, and living faith, those who obey in sincerity. But it's not faith plus something extraneous to faith. It is faith in a living form worked out. Does that make sense? Can you see the importance of the distinction there? This text does not teach that we are in by faith, and then it's up to you to stay in by works. You've got to take it from here. The passage does teach that you can both hear and see true faith. You can both hear and see true faith. This is the point that David Gibson makes in his lovely new book on James called Radically Whole. Is that right, Pat? Maybe. It's possible. I forgot. The mantle has been handed. Pat's looking at me like I'm not in charge of the library anymore. What are you doing to me? (laughs) David Gibson, his little book on the book of James, remarks that talk is cheap, essentially. That's what James is wrestling with in his epistle. That's what we're seeing here. Talk is rather cheap. He says there's actually a visible component to faith. You should be able to see faith. Faith has an incarnational reality, if you will. Faith is not purely spoken. Faith takes a reality in a life that's lived in accord with it, as we're going to see. There's a difference between saying you believe something and actually believing it. You might think of that scene that we love with Peter and the apostles in the boat. Jesus walking on water. I trust that they all believed that he was the Lord of heaven and earth. But only one of them said, let me come out to you. That's faith. That's living faith. It's putting your money where your mouth is, if you want to use a colloquialism. Not to disparage the other disciples, but... Peter was the one who walked by faith in that instance, who took his life up as a logical conclusion of what he said he believed. There, Christ upon the water. There, the Lord of heaven and earth. If it's you, tell me to go, and I'll go. And he went, and he partook of a power that was remarkable. Faith can be both heard and seen. The difference that is being 
presented to us here is the difference between dead faith and living faith. The difference between false faith and true faith. And false faith is dangerous, which is our next point, the face of false, false faith. That's difficult to say. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The first danger of false faith is that it knows the truth at some level. At some level, it has true knowledge. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Just consider what false faith knows according to this passage. It knows something about the kingdom of heaven. It knows that entrance into the kingdom of heaven is blessedness. It knows something of the coming judgment. It knows something of heaven and hell and the reality that the Son of Man will judge all things. It knows all that. At some level, it knows all of that. It knows something about Jesus Christ. Jesus is speaking here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. That's astonishing. It's not not everyone who says to Muhammad, Lord, Lord. Not everyone who says to some other imposter, Lord, Lord. Everyone who says to me, not everyone who says to me, Lord. It knows something about Jesus as king. It knows something about Jesus as the Christ. This is striking awfully close to the heart of saving knowledge. Can you feel it? Feel it. Feel it. You can probably go farther still. The double title, Lord, Lord, is pretty significant here. It might just be emphasis, but it sounds like the heart of God's self-revelation in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful. It's quite possible that false faith acknowledges Jesus as God. Mm. Jesus is Yahweh. That shouldn't be that surprising, guys. That shouldn't be that surprising. Consider the state of the nation of Israel when Christ arrived on the scene. They had pristine content. They had plain revelation. And yet they knew not the one who stood before them. All of which is to say, mere knowledge, regardless of how precise, how accurate, is not sufficient evidence for true faith. Do you hear that? Mere knowledge, regardless of how precise, regardless of how accurate, is not sufficient evidence for true faith. Please hear this, confessional Presbyterians. Believe it or not, there will be people on that day who know the Westminster Shorter Catechism. There may even be people on that day who know the Westminster Larger Catechism. Precision, depth is not a sufficient evidence for true faith. James writes similarly, you believe God is one, you do well. 
Even the demons believe and shudder. That was Israel's catechism. That's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Adonai Echad. The Lord is one. They knew their catechism. At some level, they had pristine, precise knowledge. You can't get any more orthodox than that. The problem isn't the knowledge. The problem is that it's mere knowledge. Again, we would be fools not to take this to heart. If you're just dismissing this out of hand, you're in a precarious position because we have precise knowledge, beloved. The Westminster Standards are the high watermark of theological precision, accuracy, and loveliness. But mere knowledge, mere possession of these things, it's not sufficient. Memorize the Westminster Shorter, but pray over your memorization. Bathe it in prayer. Why? So you be kept from the dreadful reality that St. Paul envisions in 1 Corinthians 13.2. What does Paul say? If I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, I am nothing. Your vast theological brain isn't going to save you if it doesn't facilitate worship, love, the precision with which you can weigh into every head of doctrine, every theological dispute. It's not going to save you unless it facilitates love, beloved. Love, beloved. Love, beloved. This is how the world will know you are my disciples, not by your ability to articulate 17th century reformed scholasticism. By your love for one another. It's not pitting love against knowledge. I keep saying mere knowledge. Do you can hear it? Mere knowledge at some level. I'm making qualifications in that. True and saving faith isn't less than true knowledge, but it's more than true knowledge. Hmm? Fair? It's fair. False faith also says, I've had remarkable experiences, though. And that's dangerous, too. What's it going to say? Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, do many miracles in your name? Then I will say to them plainly, I never knew you. That's astonishing. Those are remarkable experiences. They're actually signs of apostles. These are the signs of the apostles. These are the true, extraordinary works of the Holy Spirit that frequently attended the apostles' ministry. So what is he saying here? These things are bad in and of themselves? He says, no, they're not sufficient evidence of true and saving faith. He's saying something similar in Luke 10. Do you remember when he sends out the apostles and he gives them all authority to preach, to heal, to forgive, to drive out demons? And they come back. 
And they're really impressed with one thing. Do you remember what they're impressed by? Even the spirits are subject to us in your name. I mean, that would be impressive, quite frankly. You encounter the unseen realm right there, and you say in the name, in the name of Jesus, away. That would be impressive. Like, look, guys, we're anti-supernaturalists because we live. Those weren't just like mental illnesses going on. Like it was the unseen register intruding into this world and they encountered them in Jesus' name and they obeyed these forces that are mysterious and dark and destructive and the stuff of nightmares in Jesus' name were subject to men. That's astonishing. And so they were astonished. And what did Jesus say? Don't be surprised. Don't rejoice in that. Don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you in my name. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of heaven. He's properly directing the locus of astonishment. It's not these... Miracles aren't impressive. It's not that these experiences aren't impressive. It's just that they're not as impressive as belonging to the true and living God. It's strange, though. How, how, can, how can you be a conduit of this kind of power but not be a participant? Is that strange to anybody else? Well, I hope so, because I'm about to answer why it's possible. <laughs> There's a few passages in Scripture that might shed some light on this. The first one is Balaam. So Balaam in Numbers 23 and 24, he, look, he is a consulter with the unseen realm. He's not a prophet of Yahweh. He's a consulter with mysteries, not a prophet of the true and living God. But what does he become? He becomes a conduit for the word of God, for the power of God. And yet he was not a participant in that power. Another one that's kind of strange, again, the Old Testament, indeed the whole Bible is much stranger than we think it is because we're anti-supernaturalists at heart. We've got to get rid of that. Let's work on that together. Another one is 1 Samuel 28 and the witch of Endor. You know this story? That's a strange one. Again, she's a consulter with the unseen things. And yet through her consultations, a true word comes about. So again, not a participant, but a conduit for this power. I think Paul gives us a more accurate glimpse of what's going on here. 1 Corinthians 13, 2. If I have prophetic powers... And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. He's not saying, yeah, you didn't have those remarkable experiences. He's not saying they didn't happen in Jesus' name. He said they're not sufficient evidence for true faith. They're not to be boasted in. They're not to be rested in. Love is the terminus, again, Worship is the terminus. Now, I think there's sobering words in this for our charismatic brothers and sisters. They're not here, but perhaps you know some of them. Maybe you're here. Your extraordinary experiences count for relatively little. 
That's what it says. It's plain. Like they count for relatively little. They're not a sure foundation. They're not sufficient evidence. But what does it mean for us Presbyterians? Because we believe that the extraordinary work of the Spirit was for a time, for a specific purpose, evidencing true apostles, laying that foundation of revelation. The Spirit continues to work, but he works in that register to which Christ was constantly pointing us. The register of the forgiveness of sins, the register of growth and true life. That's where he's operating now. That's the better miracle, is it not? Would you rather say, get up and walk, Lord, your sins are forgiven? Well, it's plain, like the forgiveness of sins is the better one, beloved, even though our hearts usually want get up and walk. But what does this mean about the temptation to see extraordinary experiences as sufficient evidence for true faith? especially for us as Presbyterians. One of the most sobering for me as a minister is that a successful ministry is no sufficient evidence for true faith. A successful preaching ministry is not sufficient evidence for my faith. For a layperson, this would mean successfully sharing your faith is not sufficient evidence for true faith. Isn't it sobering when you hear that these men who have preached their whole lives powerfully with conviction and effectiveness, and then they come to the end of their race, and then you find out that the whole time they were living double lives? How is that possible? They were a conduit of power, but not a participant of power. It's the same thing, isn't it? Isn't it the same idea? It's the same spirit that's using them to work through them, but which, much to their discredit and to their utter shame and now destruction, they never personally partook of. That's dreadful that that's possible. It's terrifying for me as a minister. Or maybe for you as lady, if it's possible for me as a minister, then it's possible for you in your particular station as well. Maybe you love sharing the faith and God uses you to bring others to faith, but you want nothing to do with church. We've met people like this. They're, they're, they're zealous for the gospel. It's like, oh, wonderful. Like, where, where are you a member? Like, where, where is your life of discipleship unfold? It's like, oh, I don't do anything. Like, oh, like the Lord says, why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I tell you? That's dreadful. If that's you, if there are people in your lives who do that, lovingly exhort them. Exhort your own heart that you have this in you. There's some other experiences. 1 Corinthians 13, if I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Lord, Lord, didn't I tithe regularly in your name? Lord, Lord, didn't I make massive donations in your name? Lord, Lord, didn't I go toe-to-toe with the corrupt civil magistrate in your name? Who do you think's burning the bodies? If I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, I am nothing. Didn't I go toe-to-toe with the beast and get burned in your name? Wasn't I a culture warrior in your name? Didn't I have tons of kids in your name? Not sufficient evidence. 
Beloved, not sufficient evidence. It's sobering, isn't it? Come on. It's sobering. If you haven't dismissed me yet, and I hope you haven't, because I've been praying all week that you wouldn't, it's sobering. The fact that he says many, 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 not a few, not some outliers, many. That ought to humble us mightily. The proper response to this text is humility. If you find your heart rising up, pray against it, because that's the wrong response. The response is humility. The response is, I've got this in me. The response is, is this I, Lord? And a sober answer says, yeah, I've got that in me. Teach me the way that I am to go. But remember, he's telling us this now. He sent me here now. It's not that day, beloved. He says, many will say to me on that day. It's not that day. It's now. I am the ghost of Christmas future. <laughs> and it's not written in stone. <laughs> it's the loveliest part of Christmas Carol, isn't it? That it actually changes his course. That this word changes his course. And he doesn't leave us in despair either. He doesn't want us to be wondering. Well, it's like, well, if those aren't the evidences, what is? It's like, well, I'm not going to tell you. It's like, no, he tells us. What is sufficient evidence of true and saving faith? It's so simple. It's so elegant. It's so lovely. Sincere obedience. Notice what I said there. Sincere obedience. That's what he says. He says it twice in two different ways. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The negative way that he says this is at the end. And then, Will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's the thing about false faith. It's really just a thin veneer for your selfishness. It suits you to give. And so you give. It suits you to work miracles. And so you like it. Mm. The reality is, is it papers over a heart that still hasn't been changed by the astonishing revelation of who Jesus is. The declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord is a true statement. He is Lord. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the revelation of the true and living God. He deserves all obedience, all worship, all honor, all glory. Beloved, that is a fact. It's a fact that's demonstrated in his whole course of life. As he showed himself to be the Lamb of God, pure, gentle, innocent, the perfect embodiment of righteousness. He showed himself to be the exact image 
of the invisible God. How can you say to me, Philip, show me the Father when we have been together all this time? False faith is dangerous because it enables our self-worship. It enables us to convince ourselves that we really do confess and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord while we really just do whatever it is we want to do. <laughs> Mark that we've got that in us. That we're very good at convincing ourselves that what I want is really what Jesus wants. And Jesus wants my wife and my children to submit, so I guess he wants me to speak cruel words to them. And Jesus wants my husband to lead me well, so Jesus wants me to manipulate and coerce him. Jesus wants leaders in the household of God to lead well, so we've got to take matters into our own hands. Jesus wants sheep to learn how to submit, so we have to speak harsh and cruel words for them. Each instance, baptizing the base tendencies of our heart in the name of Christ. Do you see that you have this in you? Do you see that you have this in you? Do you see that you have this in you? Grappling with that and then coming terms with this question. Asked in earnest. Do I ultimately want my will or his? And make no mistake, beloved, he's told us what his will is. You just go back to the beginning of chapter 5. That's his will, beloved. It's everything he just set forth. Those who do this, do what? Turn the other cheek. Love your enemy. Love your brother. Foster a pure heart. It's like, whew, how do you do that? that I, I can't do that. I can't do that. So you get a sense how this isn't in by faith, stay in by works, because this isn't talking about external works. This is talking about sincere obedience from a new heart, which is a work of God, which is received by faith and sought in faith, beloved but is recognizable in some sense. Scripture's plain. Scripture's absolutely plain, beloved, that the life of God's people will be adorned by faith, hope, and love in some recognizable form. Content yourself with nothing less than that evidence. It's obedience unto God's will, not in perfection, but in sincerity. As you come to faith in Christ and you follow faith, you follow Christ in faith. Let's pray. Mm. Our great God in heaven, these are weighty words. We're prone to get this wrong in so many ways. Guard us from the sin which is ever crouching at the door of our hearts. Keep our 
hearts fixed unto Christ, though we are prone to wander. Sanctify us, O Lord, in your truth, even now, for we ask in Christ's name, amen.